We're in a book of names. We're talking through the book of Nehemiah. The very name of the book is a name of a person. And if there's one thing that's probably marked this book more than any other, it is the lists of names that are scattered throughout the book week in and week out. And we start to think about what is the importance of a name? When you meet somebody for the first time, what is the first thing you ask? What is your name? Name is synonymous with identity, with who a person is. It's on our ID cards. It's how we recognize somebody. The moment you say somebody's name, in rushes to your mind everything you know about that person. Names are important. Whenever I I think about the importance of names, one of the things that I think about the most is the 1953 play by um, Arthur Miller called The Crucible. Maybe many of you read that play in high school or or since then or have seen the, the movie adaptation of that play, or maybe you've seen the play in person, but it's a play about the 17th century Salem witch trials in Massachusetts in which the chief protagonist, John Proctor, towards the end of the play, faces the charge of sorcery and witchcraft. And he's hauled before the court. He he tries to deny it. He denies it in front of the court until, uh, you know, he, he can't deny it anymore, but they just won't believe him, so they lock him up. And it's towards the end of the play, and Uh, As he is languishing in prison, they come to him and they say, John, if you'll just confess, if you just confess and, and write a confession out and sign that confession, you'll be you'll be saved. We'll spare your life and we'll stop this trial, we'll stop these trials against all these people, and everybody else will go free, and the people will be satisfied. And of course, that moment in the play is John Proctor's crucible, right? The moment of truth. And so thinking through the issue, he finally comes to the conclusion to put down his name on the paper. And he writes John Proctor and he underlines it. And as he's sitting there thinking about this, looking at his name on the paper, he can't do it. He knows they're about to take that paper and post it onto the church door where everyone will see it. And so in agony, in his moment of truth, he picks up the paper, he crumples it up and he tears it up. And Reverend Hale, one of the ministers of that town says, John, why won't you save yourself? And he looks at Reverend Hale and he says, because it is my name. It is my name, and I cannot have another. The names are important. Names are important, and so it's important for us to see the names of the people we sponsor. And it's important to us, as hard as it is, as difficult for us as it is, to see the names that are written in Scripture. I mean, I have a confession to make. I am terrible with names. I'm terrible. I meet people and I make the concerted effort to remember their name once I ask it. And I forget it immediately. 
a couple of quick stories to, to reveal this point. At my law firm, we, we hire employees regularly, and we have several folks who work for us, and they are wonderful people. They are great employees. And I get some flack, you know, every once in a while from the people that I work with because we hired this wonderful young lady, uh, and, uh, and, you know, she started working for us. And for three months, I would walk in, and I would talk to her, and I would say, hi, Rianne. Hi, Rianne. Hi, Rianne. Nice to see you. Rianne, can you get this for me? Rianne, would you mind helping me with this item? Rianne, how was your weekend? And it was three months in that somebody finally told me, you know, it's Ryan. It's Ryan, yeah. I know you've been calling her that, that, uh, that name for three months now, but somebody should probably tell you that that's not her actual name. Or last week when we were out doing some evangelism with Under Over Fellowship, we were, we were going out as teams together, and we would knock on doors, we would deliver groceries, and we would pray for the people that came to the door, talk to them about the gospel. And probably the second door in, we knocked on the door, and my son is with me, and, and uh, uh, Miguel and Mackenzie were there with us. We were a team to minister to this person, and he came to the door, and he answered the door, and he told us his name, BJ, okay? And we wrote that one down, BJ. And so we're talking to BJ for a little bit, and after a few minutes, he says, you know what, I'm kind of late for work, so I'm going to have to leave. And so we say, okay, well, sorry, you know, can we just pray for you? And of course, BJ says, absolutely. And so his kids are there, you can kind of see them in the doorway. So I ask for his kids' names so that I can pray for them. And I'm focusing all my effort, all my attention remembering these kids' names. And I start praying and I say, Lord, thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for this opportunity to speak with BJ here this morning. We pray that you will bless BJ and After a little short pause, I just resort to the, and his entire household, right? <laughs> I couldn't remember any of them. I'm terrible with names. And as we go through some of these lists in this book, maybe you feel that way about some of these lists. The names come in one ear and they go right out the other. They're hard to remember. They don't bring anything to mind. But the names we're going through in the book of Nehemiah are important. They're important names. They've made it into God's book. They've made it into His Word. They play a role in what He is doing here today. And today as we draw close to the end of Nehemiah in chapter 12, we come to a particularly important list of names, a particularly important list of names. And it's important for really kind of two reasons. The first reason is it's the last list of names, okay? And chronologically speaking, this is actually perhaps the last list of names that we get in the Old Testament until Matthew chapter 1, where we get a different list, which is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Today, this is the last list of names before we enter, we end kind of Old Testament history and we begin to look forward in anticipation of the New Testament, of the coming of Christ. But there's another reason why this list of names is important. It's because it's the list of the Levites and the priests who are going to serve in the temple of this newly constructed Jerusalem. 
the ones who are going to worship, lead the nation in worship as they prepare for the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so this is kind of a special list of names. If you're not familiar with the Old Covenant priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, the Levites, Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, right? One of the 12 tribes of Israel comes from Levi, and they were the Levites. And this particular tribe served a particular important purpose under the Old Covenant because it was the tribe of Moses. And Moses was a Levite, and his brother Aaron was a Levite. And so within this particular tribe, the sons of Aaron were appointed specifically by God to be the priests who serve in His temple the ones who would offer the sacrifices, the ones who would lead the nation in worship, were sons of Aaron. And so as we look at these, these names, and we'll go ahead and put them up here. We're not going to read them all off. I want you to see them up on the screen, though. And so as we kind of see these names up here on the screen, we, we notice that there's two groups. One is the priests, the chief priests, who are going to serve the sons of Aaron. And it would be important to verify that these individuals were actual, legitimate sons of Aaron, had, were descended from that line. Because what the people who are writing this are concerned about is that in this new Jerusalem, in this new temple, there is authentic worship here. There is the worship that God is commanding done here. And so they faithfully recorded the names of these priests to show you that these are actual Levites and these are actual sons of Aaron. And as we go a little bit further in verses uh, 8 through 11, we see the Levites because the Levites supplemented the work of the priests. The priests were the ones who offered the sacrifices, who actually went into the holies of holies but the Levites were also the ones who supported the work of the priests, who led the nation in worship, who served in the temple in various capacities. And so it's important that not only do we have qualified priests, but that we have qualified Levites who are going to lead the nation in worship. Now, it's important as we, as we think through this, and, and these, these names go all the way through verse 26 here, that in addition to the names of the priests that were alive during the events we're about to read about, the dedication of the wall, the dedication of Jerusalem, later authors came in after Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is the author of the book, but later authors also came in after Nehemiah and continued to record some of the names of the subsequent priests and the subsequent Levites who also served in the house. And it was important, again, for the nation to have an accurate history about who was leading them in worship and their qualifications before God. But ladies and gentlemen, this is more than just history. The Bible isn't just some historical book. The men who recorded these names 
we're recording them as history. They observed men who were descended from Levi, who were descended from Aaron, and who were serving in this capacity. But if all that's going on here is an accurate recording of history, we've missed something. Because while men record history, God is the one who makes it. God makes history. God makes history by telling His story. And this is His story. This is God bringing these events to pass. This is God appointing these men for this task. We have a word for that. We have a word for God creating history as it moves along and as we observe it. And we, that word that we use is providence, the providence of God. And the reason why that is important, ladies and gentlemen, for us is because just as these men are recorded in God's Word, just as He placed them there to tell us who it is that's filling these roles in these times, so also our names are recorded by God in His book. Let's look at a couple passages about that. We have uh, uh, throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, you can look at maybe the, the prophet Isaiah in, in Isaiah 49, where the prophet Isaiah says of himself or says about himself, I have been appointed from the womb. God knew me by name to go bring back the people to our God. Or Jeremiah 1.5, that, that great passage uh, in Jeremiah where the prophet Jeremiah says, this. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's God speaking to Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This great sense for these, these individuals, these prophets, that God, even before they were born, had a purpose for their life, a purpose that they would fulfill. And maybe we might say, well, that's just for these certain individuals these particular men who God has called out. It's in the Psalms that David says this. We all know the passage, and these Psalms are meant for public reading. They're meant for us all to partake in. They're meant for us all to read together as a congregation. But here's what he says in, in Psalm 139. He says, for, I formed my, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He's saying the exact same things the prophets did. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. And then he says this, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David's saying about himself, in your book was written every day of my life before any of them came to pass. And the idea behind what David is saying is that something has been written about me and it will come to pass exactly as God has ordained. And we get another reference to an idea like this in the book of Revelation. 
when we get to the end. We're going to be in the book of Revelation at the beginning of next year as we talk about the end of all things, as we talk about God's providence to bring about the conclusion of human history. And as we look to the book of Revelations, we read these verses in Revelation chapter 20 about the great judgment that is about to be come, and this is what we read. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it, that's God, that's Christ who's seated on His great white throne. And from His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened. This is the book that Jim was talking about just a few moments ago, which, was the, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. See, the books are opened at the end, and everyone is judged according to what is in those books. God has a story. God has a story that He is telling. And we are part of that story. And the question we need to ask ourselves as people who become aware of this reality, that God is moving through time, bringing about His good purposes, that His providence is sovereignly bringing about all those things which come to pass in this world for, for a particular purpose. We'll talk about what that particular purpose is here in a minute. But as we become aware of that, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. What role do you play in God's unfolding story? What kind of character will reveal itself in you in God's drama of redemption? Where has He placed you? Where has He put you? Maybe you're the pastor of a church. What will the book say about how you played that role? Maybe you're the head of a household, a husband, a father. What will the book say at the end about how you played that role? Maybe you're the mother of children. What will the book say about how you played that role? Maybe you're a son or a daughter or a student in a school somewhere. What will the book say about how you played that role? What kind of character will be revealed in you? Maybe you're a friend or a coworker, or a teacher or an entrepreneur or some boss over people, a manager over others. What will the book say about you? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about what role you serve in the larger purposes of God? Does that ever enter your mind? Because it should. Because all of us, all of us play a part in God's story. All of us are part of the story that He is writing and we should consider carefully our role. 
We should consider carefully what those books will say about us. The knowledge that one day the books will be opened and that all of us will be judged according to what is written in those books should be, at some level, equal parts motivating, right? Motivating. Do we want to have a good part in the story? Do we want to have a good character revealed in us? Is that our goal? Is that our desire? It should be motivating. We should want that kind of a a character, that kind of a role. And yet it should also be equal parts terrifying. I know my works. I know many things that will be written in that book. And it's terrifying. Because much of it will not be good, and I know that. And so what comforts our heart? What comforts our heart in light of the fact that we will one day stand in front of this judge and that those books will be opened for us? Do we despair? Do we stand in terror frozen? We don't. Why? For the same reason, because we trust in the providence of God. You see, we rejoice and dedicate everything that we do, any good thing that we do in this world, we rejoice and we dedicate it to God because of His good providence. This is exactly what we see here. And the next verse is in Nehemiah. As we read these verses, I I want you to consider a question. I want you to think about something. As we've been reading through this book in Nehemiah, who's done the work? Who's woken up day after day, got outside their house to their little portions of the wall? Who has stacked those bricks? Who has taken the great beams cut down the wood to make those beams, fashioned them into these great wooden beams. Who's, who's done the work there and has stood those beams up to set the foundation for the gates, all the gates that surround the city that we've read, that Robbie did such a great job weeks ago talking about all these different gates around the city. Who did that work? Who stood guard at night to, to guard against the schemes of the enemy? Who put on their armor and took out their shields and their swords and stood guard on that wall to make sure no one destroyed what had been done? Who did that? Who fought off the raiders that would sometimes come to try to destroy the work of the people of God? Who who did that? And as you think about the answer to that question, and as we read these passages, I want you to do this. Who gets the thanks? Who gets the praise? Is what we're about to read a big celebration where everybody comes around and just starts patting themselves on the back and says, look at how good we did. Let's read together and find out who gets the praise for all of the work that has been done. In verse 27, we read this, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places, the people we just read about to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving. 
and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. There we go. Also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmeveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah, this is Nehemiah talking, up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south of the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah. And then there's a long list of names of people who went with this group, led by Ezra. And we pick up again in verse 38 where they say, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half the people. So Nehemiah goes with this group that goes to the north, one choir to the south, one choir to the north. And I followed them with half the people, and on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hanel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to halt at the gate of the guards. So they go all around the city, one group to the south, covering the southern portion, another group to the north, covering the northern portion. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Menamin, Micaiah, Elioniah, Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets, Messiah, Simeah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonana, Malachijah, Elam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezriah as the leader, and they offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far off. Why were they so happy? Who is getting the praise here? Who is getting the glory for all the work that has been completed? When you answered those questions just a moment ago that I asked, who did the work? The people of Israel know who did the work. They know who to give thanks to. And they know that that thanks goes to God Himself. It goes to God Himself. God made them rejoice for what He had done among them. We see this in the New Testament as well. The Apostle Paul is perhaps the, uh, the most well-known, the most prolific of the New Testament writers and his missionary journeys around the world. He accomplishes so much. We owe a great debt to the Apostle Paul, don't we? We read his words almost every week here at Christ Community Church because he has written so much of what we know about the gospel, 
That's in the New Testament. And here's what he says about himself. In, verse, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked hardy, harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. And then he says again in, in Colossians, verse 1, chapter 29. Well, he says it starts in 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And this is what he says. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. Now again, we might be tempted to think, well, that's just Paul, right? That's just Paul. But what does he teach? What does he teach for us? He says in Philippians chapter 2 about us. He says this about the, the Philippians that he's writing to. He says in verse 12, therefore my, beloved brother, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And to the Ephesians, he writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, after saying we've been saved by grace through faith, and even that's not our own doing, it's a gift of God so that no one may boast. He says this about the Ephesians, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of our good works, all of the things that we do, all of the things that we accomplish, the walls that are built, the temples that are made, the protection of the people, everything that is done that is good by the hand of man is the work of God in and through His people. It's the work of God. And here in Nehemiah chapter 12, the people rejoice because they see the wonderful wall that has been built and the new temple that has been established, and how God has gathered the people from the farthest corners of the Persian Empire and brought them back into Jerusalem. And they know that it's the work of God. It's the work of God accomplishing His purposes. And it's because of that that we know God is accomplishing good purposes, that the tear of that judgment that we might be tempted to feel, fades away when we trust in God, when we put our faith in Him. And when we put our faith in Him and we see and we meet His Son, where does that trust go? We recognize that Christ, Christ and Christ alone is the one who has come to save us from our sins, that we no longer have to live in terror of that coming judgment because of the work that Christ has done. And when we put our trust in Him, our name is written in that second book that Jim mentioned earlier and that we read in the book of Revelation, the book of life. 
2017, a group of men from Christ Community Church went to Kenya, and um, we went there to partner with a group called Christlike Kenya Academy. And as we were there, we recorded some video, and since we've been on this trip, we have started a, 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 a nonprofit called Feed Teach Hope that supports what the work that's going on there in Kenya. And I think the, the video that was made by a former elder here, Rick Bowers, who's now a pastor at Round Rock in, in um, uh, Redeemer in Round Rock, tells this perfect, tells this story perfectly. So I'd invite you to watch that video. Feed Teach Hope works to identify and train an indigenous church planter and send them into a community with the ultimate goal of planting a gospel-centered church. Once they enter that community and begin to hear the stories and needs of the people, they work to meet those needs. In some places, it will be food. In other places, it will be education. But in all places, it will be the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The challenge of every church planner is the how. How do you get your people excited? How do you maximize uh, limited resources? And how do you get your congregation to care about world missions, about people who are thousands of miles away? And the great thing about Feed Teach Hope is that they've provided you with the how. For us, Feed Teach Hope is the bridge. Even all through Paul's letters in the New Testament, He's connecting all these different people who are disconnected by distance and geography. And he's saying, you need to care about what's happening over here because these people are your family too. In the town of Lamuru, which is about an hour north of Nairobi, we see a man named Linus who's moved into the area and he's planted a church so that he can care for the community, so he can build relationships and start discipleship. And he's like, we're looking for ways that we can serve our community. And he's also started a feeding program for children who are in the slum area there in Lamuru. But the government came and told us that we needed to do more than that. We needed to start a school where the feeding program will be so that they can get their basic education. So now there's an accredited primary school in the slums. Linus is the core of what is going on with Feet Teach Hope in Kenya. He is the man who's helping us identify church planners all throughout the country who also have a heart to reach their communities, meet their physical needs, and bring the hope of the gospel all throughout the country. In Indorasha, there's a woman named Alice. And she lives on a farm, and what she noticed was that the local neighborhood children began stealing from her farm. So instead of punishing them or seeking retribution for them, she began to feed them. She invited them in, she listened to them, she heard their stories, she gave them her time, she gave them care. And so now day in and day out, she cares for these children. She provides for them food, she walks them through how to live, simple life skills, so every Saturday, I have a session whereby I talk to them and tell them about Jesus and how if they trust in God, He can give them hope in life. When I saw Alice in her community and how she loved the kids there and took care of them, and I saw the gospel, I saw the way God loves me. 
North of Indorasha is a town called Archer's Post, and in Archer's Post lives a man named Simon. As a small child, he was stolen by another tribe along with his father's cows, and then raised in this opposing tribe. And then as he grew up, there was a third tribe who was also an opposing tribe to the other two tribes. And he ends up marrying a woman from the other tribe. And so now as an adult, he is this guy who understands the, the culture, language, and ways of all three of these different tribes who have been at enmity with each other. The great commission that the Lord has given us, that's motivated me that I need everyone to know the true living God. Because of God's providence, Simon has gone into all three tribes and planted a church among each one of them. And he's been able to turn their hopes to the gospel. To see that happen a thousand miles away, how the gospel is played out. As Jesus said, that go ye to the nation and preach to all people, making them by disciples. I mean, that's the gospel impacting all of life. God has a story written across the fabric of time. It's a story of men who are called by him, going into the world and proclaiming the hope of the gospel. They begin to see and feel the needs of that community. Each story is different, each need unique, and the gospel compels these church planters to respond and to help. And as these pastors seek to care for their communities, Feed Teach Hope is working to come alongside them and help. We wanna help identify pastors. We wanna help train them and send them into these communities so they can hear the stories and see the needs, and then we wanna come alongside and help provide for these needs. We want to support the great work that God is doing in Kenya through the men he is sending. And we hope you will be part of the story. When we started Feet Teach Hope seven years ago, we had no idea how we would get the resources. We had no idea how we would make an impact over there. We just knew that there was a cause that there were good people over there, people that we could partner with, those names that you heard on that video. And the thing is, and we'll conclude with this, is that we don't know how the work is going to get done, but we trust in the good providence of God. And when we trust in the good providence of God, God works through His people to provide all that is needed to accomplish His good purposes. We see that in kind of these concluding verses in Isaiah, or Nehemiah chapter 12, where we read about, in verse 44, that on the day men were appointed over the storerooms. So on this great day of rejoicing, men are appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to collect the resources to continue the worship in this new temple. And we read in, in verse 46, for long ago, in the day of David and Asaph, there were directors, and the sing there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all of Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that was for the sons of Aaron. You see, they, they needed resources to continue the ministry 
in Israel. And God provided. He provided out of the joy that He produced from those who trusted in the providence of God. And here's your takeaway today. Trust in the providence of God empowers the people of God. Trust in the providence of God is what empowers the people of God, knowing that you are part of a good story and that God has a role for you in that story. And what is that good story ultimately about? It's about what this season is about, this Christmas season. It's about the coming of Christ. You see, Nehemiah was looking forward to that. He was preparing the way for that. And we get to look back at the accomplishment of God's great purposes. We talked about names at the beginning of this sermon and the importance of names. Well, there is one name that God has set above every other name. It's the name of Jesus. It's the name of Christ. And we proclaim that name, and that is the work that God has for us to do. Let's pray.